0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24 This week, we explored the best bodies in the world.
1: My first body experience was back in the early 1990s, when I discovered body utoke in Zurich Seyfeld. What started as a quick dip ran well into the evening, and the evening ran until they locked us out. The following morning, we were back the moment they opened the shutters, and for a brief moment, it felt like the most exclusive little secret.
0: Plus, Carlota Hebelo tells us her experience in Ukraine.
2: There's a lot of families returning. They've heard the report from back home about people living, particularly in western parts of the country, how despite everything, life can continue more or less back to this new normality, and they rather go back to their country than being away. All that and much
0: more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, regular listeners will know that Monaco's Carlota Rebelo and Chris Chermak spent nine days reporting from Ukraine for us. They're now safely back in the UK, and Carlota has joined Emma Nelson in the studio to tell us about their reporting trip.
3: Every time I was speaking to you in the last few weeks, you've always been in transit, so it is a delight to have you back in front of me in the studio. Quite happy to be stationary at this I very point. you are. But, tell, I mean, when we were talking to you and you were travelling and you were on trains and what have you, you were talking about a, a country that was on the move, but there wasn't perhaps that. Desperate flight that we witnessed at the beginning of the the beginning of the conflict. So, is there any way that you could sort of describe how parts of Ukraine are, are feeling and, and managing at the moment?
2: Well, the first thing that is important to note is that we are very aware that we went to Eastern, Western Ukraine, and not Eastern Ukraine, where the majority of the conflict, the direct conflict, is happening. And it's important to make that distinction um, when observing the movements of people. I think the first indication that we had that things were different was when we were in Poland um, in the town to cross uh, into uh, Ukraine um, in the Polish um, by the Polish border. Um, The way into the country and I think we spoke to you actually from that very line before we boarded the train um, it's this uh, sort of separate terminal within the train station um, that receives all the domestic Trains within Poland, and then there's a separate bit that has the passport control, etc., for the trains going into Ukraine. And our train was delayed for about three or four hours. Despite being there, we could see it because a train arrived with people coming into uh, the country. And it's the same facilities to process everyone that's in either coming in, um, you know, because they have visas or requesting asylum or uh, getting refugee status. So that takes a while. But our train getting into the country was almost full, like there was n- barely any seats left. And it wasn't necessarily the same of those coming out. And that was the first hint for us that this is not the same movement or the same level that we had seen in the beginning of the war after the February 24th. Who was going in? So going in is a lot of families returning, you know, Ukrainians, it's Ukrainians who, you know, have been months of them living elsewhere. Uh, they've heard the report from back home about people living, particularly in Western parts of the country, how despite everything, life can continue more or less uh, back to this new normality. And they rather go back to their country than being away. Uh, a lot of people are coming back as well because the school year begins in September and they've decided they want their kids to you know, study and grow up in the country that they're from. Um, And others who might have left in a rush, have been able to find either a stable job or um, managed to get the elderly parents out of the country and them themselves are going back. There was also a lot of journalists, NGO workers. um, And uh, that was more or less the people coming in. So the mood that was kind of evident throughout all of our, the nine days we were there and throughout all our travels across different cities, is that this is a country that has discovered a new normality, a new way of living with the everyday life. But of course, it is still a country at war. Everyone has been affected. Even if you happen to live in a city that hasn't been directly hit, It's been affected. We were in the city in the south, in the western south part of the country, Chernivtsi, very close to the Romanian um, border, which hasn't had a missile strike, hasn't thankfully been hit until now. But it's been feeling the results of the war because the population has nearly doubled um, because of people fleeing. Um, It is close to the border, so there's a constant influx of people in and out. Uh, So everyone is being impacted. And if it's not directly, it's because of relatives, it's because of friends. And at the end of the day, it's their own country. It's their homeland, uh, where you, if you see monuments, cities, iconic buildings being destroyed, if you hear about the number of deaths, the if you hear about the injuries, uh, young men being deployed to the front line, there's no way that can't affect you.
3: No, it's, a, it's an astonishing thing, actually, when you talk about children being sent back to school there, because that anybody living there will be will be living under the constant threat that Russia could start to deploy some missile to an unexpected part of Ukraine, which is what it's been doing for the last few weeks. And if you speak to any Ukrainian who has a relative or a loved one a man who's under the age of, I think it's fifty-five, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Then they have been sent to the front line. So there are great swathes of society which have been forcibly separated. I mean, were people talking about the
2: fact that they that their family units were being split to pieces? Uh, absolutely. And uh, there's there's this. Um, what's happening at the moment is that the army is uh, stopping. Um, seemingly at random, men on the street to check if they've already been enlisted, etc., and essentially serving them their papers that they have to go and serve in the front line. Now, there are ways around it um, where it becomes an administrative issue rather than a criminal one, etc., but a lot of men are, are being given these papers. We saw that happening. Uh, We were traveling by train and in one of the train stations we arrived in, there was only one way out of the station and uh, there were four soldiers blocking the way out. Well, not blocking, but placing themselves on the way out and they were just stopping... Men at random who are getting out of that train um, to check their documents. Our own photographer for the story you were working on uh, with the magazine got stopped while he was reporting, uh, but because he had the press accreditation for the story he was working with us, um, the army let him go without further questioning. Um, so, you know, this is something that is happening quite regularly. And I must say, with our news editor, Chris Chermak, who was there with me, when we left Ukraine, we left via Romania on this sort of mid- bus um twenty people almost like a school trip type situation and he was the only young man in that bus that was under the age I guess after that the everyone else was in their sixties and he we were very aware of that and when the border patrol stopped us to check our documents, they were like intrigued by his passport and why he was able to leave the country
3: um one thing that uh, Chris has written about today in today's monocle minute is the is the fatigue. That everybody is experiencing. I think he mentions uh, doing. You did an interview with the Ukrainian minister for digital transformation, who was to his seventh of fourteen meetings that day, and it's only, only just gone noon. I mean, what is it that is actually keeping people going here?
2: It's just that they know that if they allow the momentum to be lost. Um, it makes their future even more uncertain. One uh, official, we spoke to the mayor of Lviv, uh, one of Ukraine's biggest cities, uh, who told us, you know, Right now, in the entirety of the European continent, everyone is enjoying a summer holiday. There is no summer break for Ukraine this year. Uh, we cannot allow ourselves to have a summer break uh, because the moment we put our guard down, that's it. That's the end. Uh, we met with the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, who you could tell just how tired he was as well. And that's the thing. They still welcome you. Uh, you know, they are so glad to speak to us and to give us their time. And we were so privileged and honored to have people from officials to, you know, everyday citizens to share their stories with us. Um, And they kept apologizing for being tired. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I really haven't slept well. It's like, of course, you've been at war since, you know... To 2014 but this full-scale war since the 24th of February and we had kept having officials apologizing to us in interviews for you know stretching or a yawn we're like of course uh, it's fine <laughs> while they are being worn
3: down by the war what about the other diplomatic efforts that are trying to sustain Ukraine's campaign against Russia I mean this is this is this terrible thing that Ukraine cannot finish until
2: Russia is driven out so we we spoke to a few ambassadors when we were there because we were keen to hear How diplomacy is uh, continuing. You might remember, Emma, that uh, after very A few days before uh, Russia launched the full-scale invasion, a lot of the embassies asked their staff to leave the country. And that was, for the international community, the biggest sign uh, that something bad was about to happen. Um, So we were keen to speak to these ambassadors who decided to come back, why, and the importance of being present. Uh, The Italian ambassador told us how, you know, his staff started crying and embracing him as soon as he came back to Kiev, how Ukrainians, we're not talking here about Italian residents, Ukrainians, As soon as they saw the flag of Italy again in the centre of the city, came to the embassy to say thank you. Uh, similar stories with the EU delegation, with the Swiss uh, ambassador too, um, and this importance of being present. But, you know, there are subtle signs of the conflict everywhere despite this return. You know, we spoke to these ambassadors in rooms that were covered by wood panels and sandbags because are, those are the security requirements. Um, when we spoke to the mayors, we got a tour of the city hall's bomb shelter because they had have to have these extra offices underground so that the city can continue. When we met the Minister of Digital Transformation, who you just mentioned that Chris wrote about in the on the Monocle Minute today, um, you know, the security line, which was in the Council of Ministers, uh, we went perhaps through three or four military checkpoints and several other security procedures until we were able to finally be let into this windowless room with him. Um, so, you know... The sky might be blue, and it might be hot, and it might be summer, but and people might still go out and be in cafes, but it is very much a country still at war, even if you're not on the front line.
0: And this week, former First Minister of Northern Ireland, Lord David Trimble, has died at the age of 77. Lord Trimble won the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in helping to negotiate the Good Friday Agreement, which ended the worst of Northern Ireland's troubles. Jonathan Powell, who was the UK government's chief negotiator in the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, tell us more.
4: I first met David in Washington. I was at the British Embassy in Washington in the early 90s and unionist politicians started coming over to meet with Congress before that had always been the prerogative of nationalists. And so I escorted him around uh, Congress with him making the argument for unionism to uh, Irish-American politicians, uh, something he did very well
5: and quite robustly. Uh, tell us more about the role he played in the Good Friday Agreement.
4: He was absolutely crucial. As Tony Blair said this morning, He was uh, there wouldn't have been a Good Friday Agreement if it wasn't for David Trimble and the part that he played. He was very difficult about the negotiations because he was fighting a very hard hand for unionism. You remember that Ian Paisley, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, the more hardline Unionist Party, had walked out of the negotiations. And David had managed to pull together... The loyalist parties, the small Protestant parties in Northern Ireland. So he still had, he still spoke for a majority of unionists in Northern Ireland, but it was still very touch and go. Anything he did could be criticised. And indeed, two of the politicians who later became leaders of the DUP walked out of the UP at that stage Geoffrey Donaldson and Arlene Foster. So he was very brave in making the decisions necessary uh, to get to the Good Friday Agreement. And the negotiations themselves were extremely painful. It was three days and three nights. And David would keep coming back asking for more. And the poor Irish. Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister at the time, Bertie Ahern, nearly lost it on one occasion when he came up very early in the morning demanding that Ulans, the um, uh, Scots-Irish uh, dialect in, in Northern Ireland, should be considered a language alongside the Irish language. So the negotiations got very heated at many stages. And it was very touch and go that last morning on Good Friday, whether or not he would go with... Uh, the agreement. I remember rushing down in the morning to bring a uh, letter to him, giving him reassurances about IRA weapons. I couldn't get in the room. I knocked on the door. No one would let me in. I pushed the letter under the door. They eventually opened the door and I went in to see him reading the letter with John Taylor, his colleague next to him, saying, OK, we'll go with this. And then they agreed. We went straight to sign the agreement and uh, Uh, And the rest is history, as they say.
5: Mm. And, of course, Trimble won the Nobel Peace Prize for that and became the first person to serve as First Minister.
4: Yes, and not everyone who gets a Nobel Peace Prize necessarily deserves it. But I think he and John Hume, who got the Peace Prize for Northern Ireland, did deserve it. Both of them made huge sacrifices. They sacrificed their political parties and their own political careers to get to peace. Uh, And I think um, he he really merited that. He started off being the first First Minister. It was a very stop-go administration because it was hard to get going Uh, because Sinn Féin and IRA wouldn't give up their weapons, so it became very hard to sustain the institutions. Um, And he wasn't the world's best salesman as a politician. He wasn't very good at carrying people with him. Uh, But he did have a very clear moral vision of where he was trying to go, and he stuck to it.
5: Uh, Now, since 2006, he'd been sitting in the House of Lords. What was his uh, position on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, he, when he
4: he left uh, Northern Ireland politics, he he told told me early on that he expected uh, Northern Ireland politics to cease to be sectarian. You'd no longer have Catholic parties and Protestant parties. You'd move to a more traditional left right. He wanted Labour Party to run for election in Northern Ireland and the Conservatives. And he joined the Conservatives when he was in the House of Lords. Um, and he um, on the protocol he took a took. I wouldn't agree with him on that, but he took a very uh, Hardline to saying that it should be challenged in the courts, and he came up with court um, with legal arguments that could be made for it. So he carried on campaigning uh, for the union uh, and on very tough on security issues. He went to Israel a lot. He was very interested in counterterrorism measures. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, what do you think his legacy will be?
4: Oh, I think his legacy will be a very strong one. I think history will be extremely kind to him. He played a crucial role in getting to peace to Northern Ireland. He started as this hardliner. Uh, both in bringing down Brian Faulkner, the moderate Unionist leader in the 1970s, uh, being in part of Vanguard, a very uh, hardline movement, being elected as leader of the Ulster Unionist Party as the hardline candidate, and being very hardline on the traditional drum cree march in his own constituency that led to lots of violence when Prost and men would march through Catholic areas. Um, but he came from that background, but he did manage to bill piece. And although it was Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, who actually were known as the Chuckle Brothers and got the thing really going properly in 2007, it was down to David Trimble and the Ulster Unionist politicians around him who made that peace possible, made the Good Friday Agreement possible. And I think that will be a very strong legacy for him.
5: Mm, uh, Just looking at what Tony Blair has been saying about him, he said once he said he would do something, he did it. That was absolutely invaluable to the trust needed to make this process work. And it does seem that trust is at the core of, of everything this man did and stood for.
4: Yes, I mean, building trust. And of course, one of the issues in the Northern Ireland peace process was uh, unionists are very literal, very precise in their language. Republicans, Irish Republicans, were very flowery in their language and very unprecise. And a lot of this was uh, about trying to get the IRA to use uh, non-conditional language. Everything they said would always have some ifs and buts in it. And so a lot of the the, the negotiation was trying to get that conditionality out of it and get that trust built. And I think uh, for for Trimble that was difficult because he found it very hard to trust the Republicans on this stuff. They promised to do things, in his view, they promised to give up their weapons and then they were very slow about doing it. And I think he felt he was let down by Republicans from that point of view. And that's really why he lost the confidence of the unionist population and why uh, he was replaced by Ian Paisley's DUP in due course.
0: You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now a highlight from Wednesday's Monaco Daily. It's about a football jersey in Australia that created some controversy. What did our all-Australian panel thought about it? Let's hear it.
6: To Australia then, seeing as how we're all sitting here, where in this weekend's National Rugby League fixtures, Manly Warringah Sea Eagles may struggle in their contest with Sydney Roosters. Seven Manly players have declared their refusal to play after learning that the Sea Eagles would be taking the field with their usual white stripes in their maroon jerseys, replaced by rainbows in a gesture of outreach to and or solidarity with LGBTQI people. The seven players who have cited religious and or personal beliefs have not previously appeared to have any issue with the name of a bookmaker being emblazoned across their work clothes. Here is Manly's coach Des Hasler speaking to Australian media.
4: The Jersey intent uh, was to support uh, the advocacy and human rights uh, pertaining uh, to gender, uh, race, culture, ability and LGBTQ movements. Sadly, the execution of what was intended to be an extremely important and pying initiative was poor. There was little consultation or collaboration with key stakeholders, both inside and outside the club. Sadly, uh, this poor management and project management has caused significant confusion, discomfort and pain for many people.
6: Uh, That was Manly Warringah's coach, Des Hasler. Um, Latika, the decision is that they're going to go ahead and play the fixture with the rainbow-striped jerseys. They have been, in fairness, praised for that by former uh, Sea Eagles player Ian Roberts, who was the first rugby player anywhere in the world to come out while still playing in 1995. So... If you are manly at this point, for all that you're thinking, you may have stuffed up the rollout here and failed to consult with the players. Is there an argument against telling the players that's the uniform, you can wear it or you're fired?
7: I think this is the worst of all worlds because it's exposed that there is not uh, necessarily a consensus in the Australian community on gay marriage. And although it was passed in a uh, kind of like a weird plebiscite public vote referendum, let's not get into it, but um, it was passed. It was
6: weird. It was weird. It was
7: passed by a vote of the Australian community with a majority, but actually, if you dig deep into that, it was expected that that yes vote would be much higher than it was. And there was a big expectation that it would be the regions, I grew up in the country in Australia, that it would be those sorts of areas that would vote no. Actually, what happened was very, very different and very alarming. It was migrant suburbs that voted Mm. no. And the regions where I grew up voted overwhelmingly yes. And this really did for the first time expose the difficulties in Australian multiculturalism that we have welcomed so many people into the country that clearly do not share what is I think, considered a, a tenant of our way of life. That's come to the fore in this issue because a lot of these players are from the Pacific Islands. Um, now, doing this in the way that it's been done without the consultation of the players has just exposed and exacerbated that. It it creates an unnecessary culture war. Obviously, it would have been far, far better for the team to have come out with a decided position on this. Um,
6: Phil, that's. Lids- there's been a similar thing at least once uh not in australian rules football but in the in the women's competition where the the aflw's only muslim player haneens raker of greater western sydney decided she wouldn't play in january uh because she didn't want to wear a pride guernsey either which seems actually even stranger in the aflw context where there are many out players playing in the competition um The AFL in particular has been or positioned itself to the disquiet of a great many AFL fans as something of a leader on social issues. But is this... Is this a thing where the league, difficult though it is going to be, is going to have to actually pick a side and tell the players that this is part
8: of your conditions of employment here? I, I, I do think so. I mean, uh, uh, firstly, I'm absolutely delighted that you've subjected an international audience to Des Hasler talking about <laughs> how how to manage oh, stakeholder expectations. I think that He's, is. He, if, he did not sound like he was if, enjoying if, his day at work. If did that he? doesn't win you every international media award under the sun, I'll be absolutely uh, devastated. Yeah. But, but,
6: m- m- Media awards are still a bit of a sore point. <laughs>
8: Phil, three
6: <laughs> swings and misses in the podcast awards on Saturday. A bit early for that. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry, Andrew. Sorry, I should, I'll, I'll wait. There,
8: I'll wait. Phil. I'll wait a few. I'll wait a few months. But the, I mean, the thing that's really struck me about Hasler's interview was he spent more of it trying to protect the seven players in question than he did trying to protect the cause that supposedly wearing this jersey was representing. He kept talk to, talking about the human rights of his players, their right to choose what they wear, their religious affiliations, all of these sorts of senses. So. Said to me that there was a, a long way to go for that club and for that code in dealing with issues around uh, around gay marriage and around sexuality. I, I think Latika is absolutely right. There's something. In Australian culture that, that this reflects. But I also think there's something in male sport that mm. this represents. And I think this goes beyond Australia because actually it's stunning to me that we have out players in all kinds of women's sports, Yep. tennis, football, you name it. It's absolutely front page news when a male player in any major sport comes out and says that I am gay. I mean, we, we had the first ever round ball footballer in the world in Adelaide last year. Yeah. Josh Cavallo at Adelaide United yeah. come out and said that he was gay. Now, that wasn't just big news in Australia, that was big news internationally, yes. because no round ball player on any continent has, has ever come out and said I think,
6: that. I think I'm right in saying no AFL men's player while active has said I'm gay, despite the fact there actually is an AFL pride game uh, every year, and the obvious statistical reality that dozens
8: of gay men must have played, and in, indeed are playing. In, in, indeed, indeed, and I think you could apply I the mean, same Ian, test. To-
7: Ian Thorpe didn't come out Until he'd finished his career, didn't he? That's also true. That's right.
8: So so I think there's something about masculinity, there's something about male sport here that, that we have to uh, get to grips with. So I think that what's happening with the, the, the sort of a humorously named manly club, I mean, you couldn't <laughs> write the headlines for this even if you tried, um, you know, sort of tells us that there's, there's something bigger and something sort of more international going on here I, too.
7: I would, I would really worry, though, if the solution was to force players to wear these jerseys. If they don't want to, I mean, they do actually have a human right to express their own political expression, uh, whether we agree with it or not. (sighs) Yeah. Um, I think forcing rather than educating and leading people to the path of enlightenment is got to be the way. The minute you're forcing people to wear these, I don't think that ends well for society.
6: But is the difficulty here, just as a final thought on this, that the, the conundrum they've got themselves into, and I think a few sports have written these terribly sort of high-minded mission statements saying we want to include everybody um, regardless of, for example, sexuality and religious belief, but as we are learning there are times when you have to pick one or the other. And is the mistake that gets made here that they're allotting equal importance to what people are and what people have chosen to believe?
7: I think, I mean, it's completely incompatible, in my view, to to say religion does not accept homosexuality. I mean, if you're a Christian, which a lot of these guys are, um, Jesus clearly gave a commandment to love one another as I love you. So for me, that's incompatible. I think these are cultural issues at play and it is best to educate uh, the guys out of this rather than trying to force them or impose a a form of expression upon them. It just will not work. And I think it will just lead to an ugly culture war that worse elements of the right will pick up and hijack.
6: The first, the first school I ever went to, to insert a note of completely irrelevant trivia, was Manly Public School. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, I, I know the suburb well. It, it is, is quite incredible, though,
7: that this debate's taking place in Australia over the rainbow flag, whereas the UK and the US are all debating toilets and trans issues. I mean, to me, that does suggest Australia's much, much further behind on all of this than I thought they were.
0: Time now for an interview of the author of a new book called Conspiracy, a history of bollock theories and how not to fall for that. Andrew Muller spoke to its authors John Elledge and Tom Phillips, Midori House. He began by asking them if they thought the current media landscape had made conspiracy theories more potent and more dangerous
9: conspiracy theories are, are are not new they've always been there in in some form right back as far as i think we, the earliest we get in there are the romans aren't they do we get any further
10: yeah i think romans is the, yeah. the, the back first back we
9: go yeah you know, i rather like the idea of germanicus starting a conspiracy theory about his own death before he died so they've always they've always been there they've always been a part of the discourse that's not to say that they don't ebb and flow and we do seem to be having a bit of a moment with them at the moment and and i think there are a number of reasons for that i think but, but i think the the biggest one by far well or well, two the the big two are firstly we're still 15 years on we're still dealing with the the wreckage of of the crash and that's still playing out in the way it's affecting politics across across the world really and the other of course is is the internet which has made a huge amount of difference in terms of you know it used to be if you, if you were the only guy in in your town who believed in flat Earth, then then you were just a lone weirdo. Everyone's going to laugh at you. But now, thanks to the internet, it's possible to find out find all the other weirdos who may think they may share your opinion about the shape of the Earth, which which makes it a lot easier to to organise and also to to find information and find past theories that that may have been laying dormant for for decades or centuries. It's, it's just much easier to get a new conspiracy going.
6: Dingbat can speak unto dingbat. Um, But Tom, for all that, do you think they're hardwired? If if I may do my sort of profound finger-steepling thought-for-the-day voice, I mean, is not, for example, religion essentially a conspiracy theory? It is apportioning enormous power and the furtive manipulation of human destiny to unseen forces?
10: absolutely i mean this is a it's a very fundamental human thing is to see events in the world to see patterns in the world we are a pattern spotting species mm. that's what we do and then trying to tell stories about why this happened and it's a really really deep impulse within us to attribute these things not to random chance or to complex systems that are very hard to understand but to basically say a powerful being did this and yes In former times, it may have been Thor or, you know, (laughs) Yahweh or whoever it may be, and now it's George Soros or Bill Gates. They are these all-powerful individuals whose dramatic, turbulent personal lives seem to then echo down at us in these thunderbolts of events.
6: While I have both you experts here, I I do want to try out my own pet theory. I'll put this to you, John. And this is the fact that for all that conspiracy theorists often present themselves as rebels and truth-tellers and resistors of this oppressive order... I've always wondered if maybe at some level what drives conspiracy theorists is that they want it to be true. They want somebody to be in charge. They want there to be order. They want there to be meaning. Oh,
9: massively. So, there's a, one of the things I discovered researching one of my chapters in the book was this, this phenomenon of proportionality bias, mm. which is the very natural assumption we make that a big cause is necessary for a big effect. So, if you look at something like the Kennedy assassination, which is obviously a massive kind of psychological trauma for, for an entire nation, if not if not the Western world, it just doesn't feel right that that could be caused by one lone nutter with a gun. It kind of feels like you need something else there to balance the scales, and another, another aspect of this, I think, is it is it is sort of comforting to imagine that somebody somewhere out there is in charge, <laughs> even even if they're malign, even if they're using the power to do all sorts of horrible things. It means that, theoretically, someone could use that power for good. The idea that we're all just kind of at the mercy of, like, faceless historical forces is vastly more terrifying, I think.
6: Tom, is it possible as well that believing in some lurid conspiracy theory, it's, it's just kind of more fun than acquainting yourself with how things actually work? Because my other... Pe- well, it's not so much a pet thing, I'm reasonably sure I'm right about this is that nobody could remain a conspiracy theorist after having, let's say, a 10 minute long off the record conversation with anybody who's ever worked at a senior level in government. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
10: if there's one thing we know about the capacity of governments, large organisations, businesses to get things done, is that they're not always that good at it. Like they're mostly quite kind of a little bit crap at it really and so yeah there is definitely this sort of thing as John says you know there's something comforting about thinking that people are in charge and yes as you say they are more fun like the trouble with reality the trouble with truth is that it is messy and complex and it doesn't have satisfying narrative arcs to it compared with the grinding, crushing reality of, like, these are complex systems trying to turn this oil tanker of the economy around, or indeed just this oil tanker of an oil tanker around, <laughs> something we're having problems with right now. Compared to the difficulties of that, the idea that if you can find the one bad wizard who's done all of this, then it's done. Yeah, that's a more entertaining thing, and frankly, I don't entirely begrudge people believe in a little bit of that.
6: Well, on that subject, the book is very careful to stress that everybody is susceptible that we can't all think ourselves above believing what is untrue or perhaps even incredible so i I did want to ask you both whether it was researching this book or at any point in your pre-researching this book lives what's the furthest actually down any particular rabbit hole either of you have ever gone what's the closest you've gone to thinking maybe there's something in this
9: Oh I did get sucked into this is a massively embarrassing thing to admit out loud <laughs> on the radio. But a few years ago they found a few missing episodes of Doctor Who, the, the, the very old British sci-fi series. And I'm I'm a nerd, that's that's always that's been a big part of my life for, for some decades. And I just got sucked into this rabbit hole of like you could see the, the echo chamber at work and so the people reporting other people's rumors and so on. Until after about six months of just reading people on the internet who knew nothing, I was convinced <laughs> that that they'd found they'd found basically all of them based on based on literally nothing. And that's, that's kind of the closest I've ever come to kind of getting to, although there was a moment researching, researching the book. I spoke to uh, one of the world's leading flat earthers and proceeded to freak out because I couldn't immediately work out why some of his arguments were wrong. So I did write, I think it was about 3,000 words that got cut out of the book. <laughs> ex- to prove to my own satisfaction that the earth in fact was a globe, at which point Tom gently suggested that that was probably not something we actually needed to prove.
6: See, see, now you've admitted that 3,000 words were cut out of the book, there, there's going to be claims that you you tried to reveal the truth and that were silenced. This, this is going to be your equivalent of Nixon's missing seven minutes. Well,
10: <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I mean, clearly it's me. I'm the one who's in the pay of Big Globe. and uh, <laughs> uh, You know, I mean, I I I loved this stuff when I was a kid. Like, mm. I was super into it. You know, not just conspiracy theory stuff, but anything sort of forty and, you know, like, I loved sort of ball lightning, which it turns out might be a real thing. And sort of strange phenomenon that, like, Spontaneous human combustion is just not as big a part of our lives as, like, my childhood reading <laughs> made me believe. Like, as far as I was concerned, that was like sort of one in two people just burst into flames. It was
6: that in the Bermuda Triangle, really, wasn't
10: it? I love the Bermuda Triangle, yeah. That's that felt... a great one. I was I was convinced by that. I have
6: to say, of which we hear sadly so little these days. All of
10: these great things that I just sort of grew up with, they just vanished. I mean, maybe in the Bermuda triangle possibly.
6: Well well, well, I guess that suggests that conspiracy theories are as susceptible to fashion as anything else and on that thought if you look around now rather than talking about specific conspiracy theories, are there particular kinds of conspiracy theories that seem more popular now than they might have been previously? I think we're seeing a lot about politics and electoral politics specifically mm. and shadowy
9: forces trying to influence who is in government because I I, I mean I suspect it's to some extent the result of, of the filter bubble thing brought up by the internet where people are like constantly talking to people who agree with them and can't necessarily get their head around the idea that actually there are just about enough people who think they're completely wrong for them to lose an election <laughs> so it's something and we, we've seen that again and again and the, the elections on both sides we saw that with the 2020 presidential we saw that with the 2016 presidential we saw that with the Brexit referendum here in the UK of, of like the losing side just not being able to get their head around the idea that they have legitimately lost.
10: I agree with that. And also, another part of this, and we discussed this a bit in the book, is politicians have worked out how to weaponize these things. Mm. You know, there's always the debate to what extent did, say, Donald Trump believe. The stuff he was saying versus just putting on a show for the crowd, probably a little from column A, a little from column B there. But around the world, you see that politicians have worked out that it's a very good deflection mechanism for not talking about your actual record of governance if everything can be blamed on shadowy forces and stuff like that. And you see that again. You see that everywhere right now.
6: We should turn finally, I guess, to the the lesson the book Your Hopes to Impart, and the the subtitle is a bit of a giveaway there, a history of bollocks theories and how not to fall for them. Uh, Is there a simple way you can insulate yourself without becoming just one of those tedious cynics who completely rejects absolutely everything? Because the other thing that the book does make very clear is conspiracy theories They might only be right by accident or in your kind of broken clock twice a day fashion, but they're not always wrong.
9: Well, there are. I mean, we, we we spend quite some time, I think, talking about the fact that some of these things turned out to be true. There was a conspiracy to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and look what happened there. <laughs> if you look at the story about Britney Spears that came out last year, being effectively held prisoner by the legal agreement she'd signed a dozen years earlier, which was revealed via via, via codes of uh, emoticons rather than emojis used in Instagram posts and like you know anonymous voicemails left on fan podcasts and stuff like that. It sounds like classic. Classic conspiracy theories, but it was all completely true. So one of the messages we do try and get across in the book is actually maybe cynicism is not in itself a good thing. It's You, you need sort of like an open mind, but also to, to, to be careful what you think about I think.
10: Yeah, I think this is the one thing, like a classic of conspiracy theories is that they're picking holes in the official narrative. And that is a really good thing. Yes. Yes, pick holes in the official narrative. The thing is, you've then got to do that back to the alternative theory that you're proposing, and that's where a lot of conspiracy theorists go wrong, is they go like, oh, well, this and this and this doesn't quite add up in what the government's telling us, and therefore, aliens. <laughs> and, you just, and you just go like, mm, yeah, but like now apply that same critical thinking, which was really good when you applied it to government press releases, apply that back to the aliens.
0: UBS
11: has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
10: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
4: To find out how we could help you,
10: contact us at ubs.com.
0: You are listening to The Curator, here on Monaco 24, and we also just released our very first paperback, The Monaco Companion, featuring 50 essays on how we can all improve our lives. Here is our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, with his take on body culture. Over to you, Tyler.
1: It's a weekday morning in June, and all along Lake Zurich, a similar scene is unfolding, quite literally, from 9am, there's a gentle rush as locals with few pre-lunch commitments file into their local body, or Baden-Anstalt if you want to be a bit more formal. Go to their seasonal lockers, pull out their loungers, and start setting up a camp for a few hours or a full day. It's a particular crowd who get there first and, for the uninitiated, it's very clear that these women, and the odd gentleman, have a set routine, their own rules and their own defined patch of real estate. They also have their own uniform. It's not a sportive swimming costume or special robe. It's more a set of parts, eyewear, jewellery, scarves, and wraps, and of course footwear. At my body, a few kilometers down the lake from Zurich city limits, the hair is blonde to silver and is worn up for frequent dips. There might be a large gator mouth clip to keep it in place, or perhaps a patterned scarf, maybe from Hermes, that's tied also to protect the scalp. I don't think this crowd would appreciate discussion about age, but they're all pushing 80, and from the conversations you detect they've all grown up in Zurich, might have followed their spouses abroad in the 1980s, and are now happily settled in their own little pocket of paradise. The bangles, hoops, timepieces, a dead husband's patek, tell you a lot. My first body experience was back in the early 1990s when I discovered body Utoke in Zurich Seyfeld. I was on a work trip from London with colleagues Helen and Alistair. The day was heavy and humid, and we thought that the wooden club looked inviting enough, so we paid a few francs, put down a deposit for some towels, and dove in. What started as a quick dip ran well into the evening as Helen bought drinks for handsome boys, and the evening ran until they locked us out. The following morning, we were back the moment they opened the shutters and for a brief moment, it felt like the most exclusive little secret, at least until we gazed across the lake and noticed that there were similar establishments on the other side. During that summer, I made it a point to travel back to Zurich to sample as many as possible and attempt to decode their specific cultures. Why was the crowd at one body younger and fitter but the food at another far superior? Before long, I realized that bodies tend to be owned by the city or local community, with life-saving and maintenance functions looked after by the taxpayer, and the food, drink and overall vibe contracted to partners with the best pitch or deepest pockets. Back at my body, Enzo has the contract. In the morning, he's cranking out cappuccinos for the ladies, and when moms and nannies arrive before midday, he's busy with hot dogs and cheese toasties. At lunch, there's a rush on beer and Weisswein spritzes. By late afternoon, the lawn and terrace are punctuated by Aperol Orange. While similar setups might exist in Austria and Germany, and Italy has its very own Bagne culture, the Swiss version has its own unique set of codes and characters. At Utoke, it's no surprise that Monocle moved its HQ just a short walk away. There's a mixed bit in the middle, and the further left or right you go, the more nude it gets for men and women. A recent initiative to make the whole thing a bit more inclusive, by opening all parts to all sexes, lasted for about half an afternoon, as those who wanted to bare their boobs and bits felt more comfortable doing so among those with similar plumbing. Another initiative that sought to do away with a daily entrance fee or annual memberships was also killed off in a referendum. Zerkers didn't want people from the suburbs freeloading or tourists piling in and taking all the best spots from those paying into the public purse. At most bodies, smoking is welcome. Ours has smart little aluminium ashtrays that you can plant into the lawn beside your lounger. There's a wooden hopper for newspapers to be shared or recycled, a playground and splashing area for kids, and little in the way of plastic cups for wine or spritzes. As there's so much grass, glasses rarely smash, and this being Switzerland, there's a sense of personal duty and responsibility when it comes to tidying up. Regulars also know that you don't play music on your personal speaker, that you take loud phone calls beyond the fence and greet your neighbors properly when laying out your towels or erecting your Fiem lounger. And yes, it has to be a Fiem lounger. I have no idea why this is the case, but it's the gold standard when it comes to personal loungers that can be stored neatly in lockers. When city leaders think about how they might improve the quality of life for the residents, a visit to the body is a good place to start. It reminds us how a bit of lawn, some wooden decking, and swimmable water does much to take the edge off after a long day, entertain the kids, and build a sense of community. The fact that many Swiss bodies are also architectural gems is another point of consideration for mayors and planners. Communities take a certain sense of pride when it comes to, my body is better than yours. After visiting our local, my mom often wonders why Toronto's pools and lakefront have such a poor and unimaginative offering. A friend from Sydney was amazed that people were allowed to drink, smoke, jump off railings, but still keep a sense of order. And where will I be this summer? Well, I might jump to Paris for a couple of days, but most likely you'll find me at the body and wondering how long it will be until I can join those ladies on their special patch of premium real estate. For Monocle in Zurich, I'm Tyler Brulé.
0: Monaco Tyler Brûlée there, and the Monaco Companion is out now. In fact, we have another essay for you. Here is Hannah Lucinda Smith on the importance of being idle.
12: In Turkey, many practice keif. The act of passing the time by doing pleasurably little, by splashing around in the Bosphorus or drinking sweet tea. Embracing it might change your life. When was the last time you did something simply for the joy of it? Not to learn anything, not for the likes on social media, but just for the delectation of the moment. I'd wager that it's been a while. If so, you need to get acquainted with the concept of Kiev. The word means pleasure in Turkish, but it's far more than that. You can find it in the feeling of the sea lapping around your toes as you smoke a hookah having dragged your deck chair out to paddling deck. You'll experience it as you rock in a hammock, watching clouds and listening to shikadas. For a pastime to count as kif, it must involve minimum effort, maximum gratification, and achieve nothing more than a pleasing state of mind. It won't give you things to brag about or make you fitter, better, faster or stronger, and that's okay. In Istanbul, the Bosphorus is the main source of Kyiv. Sometimes it's enough to watch the waves from the deck of a passenger ferry on a sunny day, or from the window of a top-floor apartment in a storm. If the weather is clement, find a spot on one of the city's corniches, park a camping chair and stare out into the water. Alternatively, you could visit one of Istanbul's public beaches and dive in. Or, take a fishing boat out and bob around for a few hours to enjoy solitude in the middle of the city. If something calls itself Kyiv, it's probably not. In Turkey, you'll find countless restaurants and cafes of this name, and most will be stressful and overpriced. The concept is far too nebulous to be used like that. Even Turks often can't tell you if an experience can be classed as Kyiv. Only you can decide that in the moment when it's happening. You might find it as you sip from a cheap flute of tea on a plastic stool in a pavement cafe, or as you observe people going about their day in an upmarket neighbourhood. There is no set price range for Kiev. Neither is it something that can be captured and shared. Your Kiev location is probably photogenic, but the spell will be immediately broken if you even consider taking a picture. If you're thinking about how your photo will turn out, and how much attention it might garner, what you're experiencing is no longer kiv. You've allowed the banality of your ego to break your connection with the moment. Switch off your phone, along with your brain, and turn yourself into a sensory receptacle. A human being rather than a content creator. For inspiration, look to the street cats, Istanbul's true masters of Kiev. Note the expression on their faces as they stretch out in the sun, as everyone else hurries around them. Watch how they ascend to ecstasy as a passerby tickles their ears. Then, see how they disappear as soon as someone whips out a phone. Cats don't care about life hacking, or how many times their photo is liked and shared. They don't even care about being liked in real life. Their existence is dedicated almost entirely to the pursuit of pleasure and the joy of lazing. Holidays are the perfect time to explore Kyiv. If going to a beauty spot and posing for photos or doing extreme sports pleases your soul, congratulations, you've found your path to Kyiv. But ask yourself where the pleasure really lies. Is it in the moment of doing those things Or in the anticipation of what benefits they'll bring you. If it's the latter, you might need to keep searching. Because most of us, whether or not we would admit it, are happiest when we're doing not very much at all.
0: You are listening to the curator. For stories this week, James Chambers takes us to Hong Kong's premier venue, which is playing host to the city's most famous pop group in a series of shows this summer.
11: Every major city has one of those special venues. Madison Square Garden, Wembley Arena, Tokyo Dome, the place that every local musician and performer from around the country, dreams of one day taking to the stage and playing in front of a packed crowd of screaming fans. In Hong Kong, that place is called the Coliseum. And this summer, the roof is well and truly going to be blown off as the local pop stars and all-around phenomenon, Mirror, perform a series of 10 sold-out shows.
10: Everybody up and get down!
11: The 12-member group, have exploded in popularity during the pandemic, and Mira's very first appearance at the Coliseum represents the pinnacle of their musical career so far. As soon as they take to the stage, they will be propelled into canto pop history, alongside legends of the industry such as Leslie Chung, Anita Moy, and the Four Heavenly Kings. <laughs> The Colosseum was designed by the colonial government's Architectural Services Department with a minimalist architectural style. Construction began in 1977, and it officially opened in 1983. Shaped like an inverted pyramid, this temple of Kantopop hovers above the ground in Hong Hom, a district of Kowloon that sits on the waterfront along from Tsim Sa Choi and sits above a major railway terminus that until recently used to run to mainland China. At capacity, some 12,500 fans can pack into the Coliseum and enjoy a column-free view of the central stage from pretty much any seat in the house. And while it may no longer be the biggest indoor arena in Hong Kong, it is easily the most prestigious. The Coliseum has hosted them all, from pop baptisms to retirement gigs and comeback shows. Leslie Chung announced his early retirement with 31 shows at the Coliseum before coming out the following year with a new album. The most emotional event in what is already a pretty weepy musical genre was Anita Moy's Farewell Shows. The final time the iconic singer appeared in front of her Hong Kong fans before passing away of cancer at the age of 40 in 2003. She famously sang in a huge flowing wedding dress. As Moy never married she wanted to symbolically commit herself on stage to her loyal fans. A biopic about her life was released last year and the Colosseum emerges as a star of the film in its own right. Watching actress Louise Wong recreate Moy's swan song, there was not a dry eye in the cinema. By now, the sound of Cantopop reverberates around the rafters of the Coliseum. After nearly 40 years, has become a part of the foundations. Nonetheless, before the pandemic shut down Hong Kong's borders, international acts would also light up this hallowed music hall. The Taiwanese band Mayday are famous for their regular sold-out residencies at the Coliseum. Since the five-piece band started out in 1997, they have built up a huge following in Hong Kong, and they are likely to want to return as soon as the travel restrictions allow. Provided, that is, the political situation in the city doesn't throw a spanner in the works. The Colosseum is owned and run by the government. It has been that way since the colonial days. So far, it has been used as a force for good. But in the future, it could be misused as leverage to encourage local stars to either side with the establishment or stay out of politics altogether. Denise Ho, A famous singer and pro-democracy activist who first performed at the Coliseum in 2006, had trouble staging a show there in 2016, after she became a prominent figure in the Umbrella protests of 2014. Banned from appearing in mainland China, no local sponsors would bankroll her shows, so she ended up crowdfunding four of them. Ho was arrested again last year in relation to the 2019 protests, and she's currently on trial on charges of sedition. With a jail sentence expected, Ho has likely played a last show at the Coliseum, perhaps even in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong desperately needs to find its voice again. Over the last few years, there have been very few big nights at the Coliseum. Only cancellations, absent crowds, and an eerie silence on an empty stage. Mirror's 10-night residency The aptly titled We Are Live could do just that. The shows are bound to be a huge moment for the group and an even bigger celebration for the city. And as fans scream and sing along, the return of live music and packed out arenas will also be a fitting comeback for the Coliseum, the spiritual home of cantopop.
0: And we like to end the curator every week with a lovely recipe. This time it's a salad recipe from the Culinary Director of River Cottage in Southwest England.
13: Hi, I'm Gail Foulterson and I'm the Culinary Director of River Cottage based on the Devon-Dorset border. We have a lovely 100-acre organic farm and I'm going to run through a great recipe for my new book, River Cottage Great Salads, and that's our panzanella. Now this is on sale at our restaurant and it sells like absolute hotcakes. It's super exciting for us here because it's the first of the tomatoes that we're seeing this year. We haven't seen one since sort of the end of summer last year, so all the chefs are sort of chomping at the bit to get stuck into them again. It's really fantastic, it's bright, it's vibrant and we have a little twist in there as well. So all you need to do is start off with two slices of slightly stale sourdough, or you can use ciabatta instead take the crusts off and tear them into pieces splash a little olive oil over them and toss them onto a baking tray with some salt and pepper pop them in the oven 200 degrees Celsius and just cook them for three to five minutes until they become golden and crispy after that you need about a kilo of mixed very ripe tomatoes preferably you want a couple that are actually gone slightly over so this is a great use if you've got a couple of tomatoes that are a bit soft and squidgy these are perfect for the start of the panzanella you get those two two of the ripest tomatoes out of that kilo and you squish them in your hands. It's proper fun. It's like being a kid again. Through a sieve into a large bowl and really scrape all that flesh through. And you'll end up with this lovely tangy tomato juice in the bottom of the bowl. You can then cut the rest of your tomatoes into all sorts of different shapes, really. You don't want it too uniform. It's nice to have a bit of variety in there. And also we use lots of different colored tomatoes as well. So if you can get some heritage tomatoes, some greens, some yellows, and some oranges as well, that is ideal pop those in with the tomato juice and then we dice half a small cucumber a small red onion nice and finely roughly chop some capers and some Calamata pitted olives and then this is the twist we like to put some fruit in our panzanella so not traditional today we're using strawberries but soon we'll be using gooseberries in there as well which add a lovely acidity and then later in the season we'll be using some summer raspberries scatter those in and then don't be shy a good splash of really good quality extra virgin olive oil And then a really good helping of basil leaves just freshly torn over the top. Give that all a good mix together with those croutons and then pop it to one side for about 15 minutes just to let everything get to know each other. Once you've had that 15 minutes, give it a really good season with salt and pepper. Tumble it all together and you're off and it's good to go. It's absolutely superb you can chop and change that fruit and you can also chop and change the basil if you don't have any you can use celery leaves and also lovage is a really good example so I really hope you enjoy that recipe definitely get in those tomatoes they're just coming into season now
0: that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator the show is produced by Jack Dewars and presented by me Fernando Augusto Pacheco join us again next week thanks for listening